0: and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash slash film.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 13th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including Guillermo del Toro's uh, a new film that he has in development called Nightmare Alley, our reaction to the Annihilation trailer. Ryan Johnson tells us the story behind how Disney agreed to his new Star Wars trilogy without a story. Uh, American Werewolf remake uh, details are finally in. George Lucas reviews Star Wars Last Jedi and uh, nutcracker and the four realms get goes into reshoots and in our feature presentation we'll be talking more about that Ladybird rotten tomatoes controversy this is peter srotta and joining me on today's podcast is slash film writers chris evangelista hello and why tran buoy
2: hey everyone
1: so let's just get into this. Uh, it's it's been a uh, busy morning. Uh, some of us had to be online early to request our press tickets for Sundance, which is always kind of a cluster f of uh, a situation, and we never get what we want, but uh, we get what we need. What we need, um, yes. So let's just jump into the news now. Uh, Guillermo del Toro has another project in development. HD, uh, tell us about it, and will it ever get made?
2: Well, that's the big question, isn't it, Peter? So fresh off of the seven Golden Globe nominations that Shape of Water has recently uh, received, Guillermo del Toro is looking forward to a couple new projects that he may or may not follow through on. He kind of has a history of not completing some of the projects that he announces, and we get excited for them, but then they kind of... The Wayside. So his newest project is a remake of the 1947 noir Nightmare Alley. And he has been attached to this project to write and direct it. And he's currently planning to co-write the film with uh, the Forbidden Room writer, Kim Morgan. Um, And this is a, like I said, a remake of the 1947 movie that uh, starred Tyrone Power as a con man who teams up with a female psychiatrist to, to swindle victims at a CD traveling circus. So it's not really along the lines of what we uh, con- what we uh, connect with Guillermo del Toro, who usually does horror and monster genres, but he's kind of dabbled with, no- with noir before, and the CD circus uh, setting seems to be up his alley. But before we get excited, I do want to remind you that he has promised us things before and we've gotten excited about films like the (laughs) stop motion Pinocchio film which already had concept art out before it did not get made and it looked like a gorgeous really interesting film and it was in talks and development for I think a good uh eight years before it just did not get made or Hellboy 3
1: (laughs) yeah Hellboy 3 or the uh adaptation of the Disneyland ride Haunted Mansion Mm -hmm. I have a poster on my wall Signed by Guillermo del Toro for that movie that never happened from Comic-Con, I think, 10 years ago. Um, And, you know, he just has dozens and dozens of projects that he's gotten involved with that have never happened. Mansions of Madness. Like, I I feel like someday I would love to see a documentary of Guillermo talking about all these, you know, projects that never happened. But if you actually ever get a chance to talk to uh, Guillermo, he, like, still is – I mean, he's a smart guy, He's a very smart, much smarter than I. Uh, but he still seems optimistic that he's going to get a chance to make many of these films. He's, which...
2: just, he's just an excited <laughs> film buff, which I admire. But at the same time, he has so he only has only has so many, you know, hands in which he can put these in these pots. Uh, he also has. The Fantastic Voyage, which he's developing alongside James Cameron, and another few films that he's producing, like Antlers, uh, which is a new film that got announced as well. So it's just—it's too much. Guillermo, just step back, <laughs> look at one movie, and get us excited for that, and then we can, you know, then we can meet in the middle.
1: I think he's one of those guys that, like, he's like, you know, if I have, if I have twelve horses in this race, then chances are one of them is going to come in first. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, like, one of them, or no, not, that's probably the bad analogy, one of the horses will get out the gate, <laughs> I guess it's probably the proper analogy. Um, Process
2: of elimination.
1: Yes, uh, also on the site today, we featured the first trailer for Annihilation, uh, the Alex Garland, uh, Natalie Portman, Oscar Isaac uh, sci-fi adaptation. Chris, I know you're a big fan of this book, we've all seen this trailer, what do you think of this this trailer?
3: I gotta be honest. I don't like this trailer that much, but I think I understand why I don't like it because uh, a few days ago, there was a story about how behind the scenes producers were concerned that the film is too complex or too weird for, you know, quote unquote normal audiences. So this to me, it looks like a case of a studio cutting a very, generic by the numbers trailer to sort of lure in, you know, a general audience uh, because the book, I don't know, this, this looks like a horror thriller and that's not really what the book is at all. And, you know, I
1: understand that yeah, director th- th- Alex th- th- this Gar- looks like predator or alien. Like it looks right, like, something yeah. like that.
3: Yeah. And like Alex Garland, the director has said he he's changed some stuff, but this looks like if this trailer is true to the film, he's changed almost like everything from the book, which concerns me slightly because the book was so good. I mean, I'm still going to see it because I loved Alex Garland's Ex Machina. I love the cast of this movie, but this trailer, it, it's not what I was hoping for. I thought the, the first teaser trailer was much better
1: at, at CinemaCon this year. They showed us like this 10 minute sizzle reel from the film. I think it was 10 minutes. Maybe it was less. Um, but it only got into the kind of alien stuff in the last minute or two. Like it, it seemed like that was like a late in the film kind of thing, but, uh, it seems to be a a much bigger plot of this film. I haven't read the book. Um, so maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, like at what point in the story does she end up exploring this, this, uh, location.
3: Well, in the book, the book literally begins with them already in it's called Area X and the the book begins with them already there and you you learn from flashbacks how they got there but it's pretty much like you're you're literally just dropped into the middle of the story in the book. It's there's not like a lot of setup which is sort of adds to the story because it's a it's a deliberately disorienting story
1: and that adds to it. Interesting. Uh HT, what did you think of this trailer?
2: I, did, I didn't like it as much as the original teaser trailer, which was very uh, haunting and moody. And I kind of like those sort of tone, tone poems that we get in trailers that don't really reveal a lot of the story. And yeah, like Chris said, it's a lot more horror action-y. But I won't put too much stock in the marketing at this point, just because I do think that it's kind of the executives panicking about how to market this film and whether audiences will be able to enjoy it. Um, I I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping because uh, Alex Garland is so talented and Ex Machina is such a great film and is not a film that tries to take shortcuts or um, tries to appeal too hard to pander to the audience. So I think this is a film that will probably stay by the more cerebral um, parts of the book rather than amping up the action.
1: Yeah, I th- I think that's the problem. It's obviously I don't think Alex Garland is is a person who is making a, a broad sci-fi thriller. Uh, but at the same time, you got to sell this to an audience and I know you love that first teaser. I actually like the the teaser as well. Um but, you know, we already seen we've already talked about this, but we've seen what happened with Blade Runner 2049. Mm-hmm. They kind of ran their whole marketing campaign and kind of those tonal poems and kind of like a uh you know, Marketing a mood in a tone rather than a story, and I I feel like that did not pay off uh, for them at the box office. But uh, you you have been writing about Mister Robot on the site uh, all this season. I haven't uh, caught up on the season yet, so I'm a few episodes behind. Uh, I I think the last one I saw was actually there. There's an episode of this season of Mister Robot that is presented all in one shot, even though it's like spliced together digitally. Uh, it is amazing, and I highly—if you aren't watching Mister Robot and have no plans to watch Mister Robot—I almost recommend you see that episode because it's so great. But, uh, but this season, H D, your coverage of Mister Robot has been kind of—it uh, seems kind of negative.
2: Is it negative? I do. Okay, so sometimes it, it seems like you—you
1: <laughs> you, uh, you are being—you're dis- disappointed at times this season.
2: I mean, there are a couple episodes where I'm not quite. Um, enthused by the by the episodes but i think that this season has been a large step up from the second season um and i really like that it's been just non-stop sort of action and like the momentum bringing forward this story arc versus sort of the confusing and frustrating um misdirection of the second season here there's no misdirection except for in some of the like ways that the audience is set to perceive what's going on in the story. But, you know, Mr. Robot is a hard show to sort of uh, to watch as you're going. It's kind of something that you have to think on for a long time. And I agree. It's been that that a uh, long take episode is one of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen, I think. And, um, and by the so- way, that,
1: that's something that couldn't have been done, I think, four years ago like it just wouldn't have been possible to achieve something on that level of filmmaking on the small screen. Like, um, it definitely wouldn't have been able to do it with, uh, you know, when they were filming stuff with film. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, now there's word that Mr. Robot is season four has been ordered by USA. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should, should, uh, how long should the series keep on going?
2: Um, I think it's a good thing. actually, I have no idea where this, sh- this, season is going to end, it's been kind of building up to just this very strange climax that we don't really, we can't really predict what's going to happen. There, Each season has so, had sort of like a late season twist. In the first season, it was the revelation of the split personalities. In the second season, it was of the um, the jail. And uh, here, we don't really know exactly how Sam Esmail is going to switch it up, or if he even is, because this... Uh, season has been much more about like this movement of plot and these sort of uh, careful interactions with the characters. Um, Although they've been making hints, Sam Esma is making hints about like possible alternate universes and parallel universes and everything. So I get the feeling that maybe Mr. Robot might switch things up even more for the fourth season and just go on a completely different level of storytelling. So I, I, contrary to some of my reviews, I will say that I'm <laughs> really enjoying season three of, of Mr. Robot, uh, just because, you know, it's such a bleak um, show to watch that you can get caught up in your like own headspace. But uh, as you sit with the series and sit with each episode, it really gets to you how phenomenal the show is and how it just kind of pushes the boundaries of what you can do with television. Television Sam S. Mills particularly has a really very cinematic eye and I always am really stunned by like what he can pull off Even though some of them can come off as kind of kind of gimmicky I really like like that. He's not afraid to do strange things with each episode So I'm looking forward to season 4 which uh, has just been renewed right before the season finale of season 3 airs tonight so it's I have no idea where, where it will go or what to predict for it um i'm guessing maybe something to do with parallel universes but that might just be a total red herring
1: (laughs) that would be interesting uh i mean sam asmo is a genius i think he's bold he isn't always successful with uh you know the risks he takes but i appreciate all the risks that he takes and uh I, i can't wait to see him you know go back to feature films and see what he can do on the big screen as much as i 'm loving what he 's doing on the small screen um, but speaking of a director who has done small screen stuff and big screen stuff last week uh, before I saw Star Wars the Last Jedi, I talked to last Jedi director Ryan Johnson about a bunch of things, but one of them was his new Star Wars trilogy, as you know. Disney has kind of greenlit a new Star Wars trilogy from Ryan Johnson that will not be connected to the Skywalker saga, will not be connected to any of the characters we know and love. It's going to be set in a corner of the universe that we don't know of. And, um, you know, obviously, (laughs) Ryan Johnson is keeping pretty mum about what this new trilogy is going to be. But at the uh, Junket, I, 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 I thought I had a way in and I kind of asked him, how did this trilogy come about? So I'm going to play that clip right now. You're doing this film, but you're not doing the next one. Yeah. What was the decision beyond... It,
4: it, it, was, time not, not, yeah. it was never even really a decision. It's always just the way it was. Okay. It was always just the plan is for me to do this and then hand it off to the next filmmaker, whoever that was going to be. So. Yeah. Um, I know you can't talk about this trilogy. I'm not going to try to... There's just, not much to talk about, honestly. I'm just at the yeah. uh, beginning
1: of the beginning. Well, yeah, the, the, well, the one question I had and I think you can probably say this without saying anything. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Is... How did that come about? You, yeah. Did you have an idea and then you pitched it to the cat? Like, how, how did...
4: No, it was... It came about because we were getting to the end of making this and, again, I knew I wasn't doing the next one and I had had a really good time not just making this movie yeah. but working with Kathy and also working with Disney, working with Bob Iger, Alan Horn, Alan Burton and we just had this really good experience and we were all... It was like last week of senior year. We were cleaning out our lockers and all getting kind of sad and saying, how do we keep working together? And that I threw out, I said, you know, the most interesting thing to me would be a new trilogy, one story told over three movies, go new places, meet new folks, come up with a new story to tell in the Star Wars universe, the sky's the limit. That sounds thrilling. And they really responded to that. So,
1: so we're off, yeah. And they, it, there was no specific idea. You just... Yeah, that, that, was, it? A, that was
4: it. That was the pitch. <laughs> um,
1: I'm so excited as a fan of Star Wars and a fan of your, uh, yours to, to get that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm also nervous. So, like, does this mean I'm never going to get a Ryan Johnson original movie, or, you know, yeah, well for the yeah, next, you know...
4: That's sweet of you to say, man. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, like,
1: can you... Does this allow you to still do those movies? Yeah, yet? that's what
4: I'm working. on, That's what I'm planning right now. Is that because I do have a couple ideas that I've, I've really well developed ideas, movies in my, in my head that I, I had before this came around that I need to find time to do, and whether that means bo- squeezing one in before the next trilogy starts or, or what have you. But I guess I, I also, you know, um, I think it's going to be really important to do that. I also, though, I don't know. It's strange. I, uh, and I know you did. You, 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 you know. I know you didn't mean it this way, but it's in my head that like it, there's no separation between the idea of doing that and the idea of like my felt like even this like this oh, I'm not, you I, wasn't I know you, it. I know you did. And I'm just talking out loud about like yeah. my, you know, because I would just it's just I want more loopers and want more I know, it, no, I totally like, understand. And I've got I've got <laughs> the thing is I also have those in my head. I've yeah. got a couple of really things I'm really excited about that are out, totally outside of the couldn't be more different than Star Wars. And I need to, you know, it's going to be a matter of figuring out how we do the next trilogy so that I can keep doing those, because, um, yeah, as much as I am excited about Star Wars and and everything, and as as deeply satisfying as it is to me, I think it'd be great to be able to do a few things outside of that, too, over the next ten years. (laughs) Are are you doing all three of those? We'll see. I don't know yet. I know I'm going to come up with the whole thing. I know I'm going to write and direct the first one, and then we'll... i don't
1: know yet we'll see how it goes so that that's really interesting that disney did not hear a pitch a formal pitch of like a story that he wanted they're you know they're greenlighting three films based on just you know the filmmaker working with that filmmaker and him being excited for you know to create a new story in this galaxy uh ht or chris either one of you like is that nuts like, is it nuts that Disney would commit themselves to three films not having any idea what what those films are going to be?
2: It's definitely unprecedented for Disney, which likes to really plan things out and uh, almost to a micromanaging level. But I'm really happy that they trust Ryan Johnson that much. I think he's a really talented filmmaker, and it makes me only more excited for The Last Jedi, which, like you two, I have not seen. Um, but I... I do think it's amazing. Maybe they're just ready for a leap of faith after working so uh, meticulously on the past couple Star Wars films.
1: Yeah, and I I kind of get the impression, reading between the lines, he you know he obviously doesn't say anything about this. I asked him, you know, why didn't he direct Episode Nine, and he kind of said that wasn't in the in the cards for him. But I, I kind of get the impression uh, because I did do that follow up of uh, you know what. Um, What's going to happen to the future of non-Star Wars Ryan Johnson original movies? Because I'm, you know, a future Ryan Johnson fan. And I get the impression that he didn't want to go right into another Star Wars movie. That they probably asked him to do Star Wars Episode Nine, and he was like, you know, no, I have this original project I want to do, but I I would like to do more Star Wars. And I I, I get the impression it, this could be me making an assumption and making things up. I get the impression of that's how this whole thing came about, which is uh, interesting to me that, uh, you know, yeah, Disney would take that bigger risk. I mean, you you look at Fox taking a risk with the avatar sequels and you have a, a known quantity that made billions of dollars. And that even seems crazy to commit to what four sequels or something. Um, So I don't know. Uh, But moving on, uh one person that also saw Star Wars Last Jedi is a man by the name of George Lucas. HT What did George Lucas think of Star Wars Last Jedi?
2: So he was actually quite brief in his review of Last Jedi which he recently saw and spoke to Ryan Johnson about. But he said that it was beautifully made and that he spoke with Ryan Johnson after viewing and was very complimentary. So it's sort of a a 360 from what we've usually seen of George Lucas in terms of how he's spoken about Star Wars after Disney has acquired had acquired Lucasfilm, in which he had kind of a tumultuous relationship with them because uh, he was sort of kicked out of the creative process and didn't really have much of say in this franchise that he helped create. So it's good that he has such high hopes or like has such a good impression of um, Last Jedi, which means it's. A great film and it has a ringing endorsement from the franchise's creator
1: for sure um but we, we'll never know what he really thinks do you know what i mean like <laughs> we never heard what he really thought of the force awakens
2: yeah um, and this was through a spokesperson too that he spoke about his his ringing endorsement so <laughs> yeah
1: an endorsement through a spokesperson um a remake that has been in the works for a little while now is a remake of american werewolf uh screenwriter director max landis son of john landis the original director is now uh talking about that remake and how it differs from the original chris what do we know
3: right so max landis uh he said he he finally finished the first draft of the script and he didn't go into too many details but um in the in the original film it begins with two uh backpackers from america uh, hiking across, you know, the UK across the moors, basically, and they they happen upon this town, this little village where there's a werewolf running loose. And someone asked him on, someone asked Max Landis online, you know, what about that town with the villagers? Why didn't they take care of the werewolf themselves? And Max Landis said, answering this question and the nature of the village's role in the plot in the second and third act as of now are the biggest changes I've made to the original structure. So that's sort of a hint of how his film is going to differ from the original. Um, He also said he rewatched the original and he thought it was quote unquote crazy. How little happens in the movie, which is a comment that gives me a lot of concern because (laughs) if you watch that original movie and your only takeaway is boy, not a lot is happening. uh, I don't know if you understand how movies work, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Like, like, you know, I know
1: know, a, a comment like that. I feel like can be taken out of context. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I think as much as I, you know, people like to hate on Max Linus, I think he's a smart person. Maybe it's kind of like that comment that like, if you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is one of the best movies ever made, and you took Indiana Jones out of that equation, the movie would have still happened. The story would have still happened the way it happened. Do you know what I mean? The bad guys would have defeated themselves right. in this in the same way. Maybe, maybe it's it's kind of a comment like that. It could be. I mean, look, you know, I don't want to <laughs>
3: I don't want to start up a whole uh, bashing Max Landis thing. Um, I do. Th- <laughs> you know, I do think every once in a while he does churn out a, an OK script. But I also feel like I don't know. He's I, I remain a little confused as to how he keeps getting work because he's had more flops than hits, but nepotism.
1: Yeah, that could be that. I, I, I don't <laughs> I, I don't think it's nepotism like okay, th- there's a clip, uh he was appearing on the Nerdist podcast and he pitched this this idea for like a Peter Pan uh prequel kind of thing. I'll put the link in the show notes, but like watching this guy pitch, like the story, you can, you can see how he probably would be in that room. And, uh, I've also read a couple of his scripts, which were much, much, much better than actual films that were made out of them. Like that Frankenstein one. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying that Hollywood is doing him wrong. Like that, that feels like it's, Oh no. <laughs> feels, he,
2: yeah, he's but, just been victim to the same Hollywood machinations that many a screenwriter does. But I will say uh, I will say this
1: though he um reading his scripts and seeing how uh he kind of captures like very intricate emotions and people and uh the subtleties of 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 someone it's it's so weird that he doesn't seem to uh, as a person Uh, be able to see himself and how he acts and how those actions and things he says might uh, reflect on other people. Do you know what I mean? Like He he seems like to be a master at writing people on on the page. Maybe not on the screen so far, but on the page. And it just seems like I think he would even admit he comes off like a douche a lot.
2: He really does. Yeah. Uh, I give him a hard time sometimes, but I do think, you know, he is a creative person and creatives aren't always the best people, I guess you would say.
1: Yeah, I know his father, uh, John Landis, was also kind of like manic and uh, people were kind of, uh, he had the same kind of reputation within Hollywood of people working with him. Anyways, um, let's move on to our last story for today. And that is Nutcracker in the Four Realms is going into reshoots. H.T., what do we know?
2: So, The Nutcracker in the Four Realms is directed by Lassie Hallstrom, uh, who directed Chocolat and um, What's eating Gilbert Grape. But unfortunately, due to scheduling issues, he wasn't available for the reshoots, which will be taking place over 32 days. So, Disney has recruited Joe Johnston, who directed Captain America, The First Avenger, and The Rocketeer to do to oversee the reshoots. So, this is... A little unusual and kind of reeks of the troubled production of Justice League for example where Joss Whedon took over after Zack Snyder had to leave due to family tragedy but the Hollywood Reporter says that this is not due to um, Hallstrom being sidelined in any ways. this is just solely due to a scheduling conflict and it's a little bit it is a little strange because usually reshoots are sort of penciled into calendars for big budget movies like this but maybe the Nutcracker in the Four rounds required more reshoots than Halstrom and the crew ber- uh, anticipated. So, oh, for sure. I mean, of, usually, yeah.
1: usually productions pencil in like you know a week or two of reshoots. Uh, mm-hmm. You said thirty-two days. That ends up yeah, being six days. six and a half weeks of reshoots. So that's pretty mm-hmm. expensive. Um, I remember seeing footage of this at uh, Cinema uh, CinemaCon or D twenty-three. One of the it, it looks kind of like a mess. <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't know I, I i i don't have any faith for this movie uh what about you
2: um i also i already don't like the fact that they added the little subtitle and the four realms because it sounds very ya fantasy-esque which it seems is what they're trying to do make it into to sort of a chronicles of narnia meets alice in wonderland hybrid which doesn't sound great to me because alice in wonderland was already quite a mess in terms of the Disney live-action adaptation. And uh, I like Narnia, but on its own. So I don't really know. I think that CGI-heavy fantasy films like this tend to become very overwhelmed and overwhelming. So uh, I don't have a lot of hope for it. I think The Nutcracker itself is a great, simple story. And I kind of like how sort of labyrinth-esque it is because The Mouse King is quite devious and quite um menacing sort of how like jareth the godman king is It's just got that kind of similar story um but they seem to be taking away that aspect and doing this whole sort of realm jumping storyline which seems a little con- confused so yeah. yeah i don't really have a lot of hope for it
1: i, I like director joe johnston uh, he obviously you know has a storied past with uh lucasfilm and uh Star Wars and, uh, you know, Rocketeer and probably his best last, his last best film was probably, uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, he's kind of thought of as a journeyman, kind of like Ron Howard nowadays. And that's probably explains why, uh, he would be brought in to kind of fix this movie. Um, and he's retiring soon. It's, It's a shame that he won't ever be able to make a Star Wars movie, but, you know, they'll hire him for, uh, you know. 32 days of reshoots for this Mm -hmm. uh, probably horrible movie. But Uh yeah, eh. but uh, let's move on to our feature presentation. Uh, Yesterday we mentioned on the podcast uh, the story of Lady Bird's Rotten Tomatoes score. It was it was the best reviewed uh, movie of all time, had the most uh, reviews with 100 percent positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And then yesterday, one critic uh, gave it a negative um, or a rotten score on the platform that caused a lot of people to be mad. This this critic, you know, uh, is notorious for kind of uh, I don't want to say trolling, but, you know, he gave Wonder Woman a kind of rotten review. He kind of contrarian. Contrarian. Yeah. contrarian's a good word. Uh, Chris, you have an update on the situation.
3: Right. So the other day I, I was I was urging caution in that I don't think it it's it behooves the film community to gang up on a film critic. But today the critic, uh, his name is Cole Smithy. He issued a uh, not really a rebuttal, but an explanation of why he rated the film rotten, even though he technically gave but, it. By,
1: by the way, do, do we really think his real name is Cole Smithy? I don't Because know. <laughs> because I'm not sure if people know this, but like when a filmmaker directs a film and they don't like the film, they they can decide. I think it's a DJA clause. They can decide to take their name off the film and it will be released under the pseudonym Alan Smithy. I didn't really? that. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. there's a lot of films out there released uh, by. You can look up a- Alan Smithy. I, I think there's actually a film about Alan Smithy. Uh, which I, is... I, I knew
3: that, but I didn't make that connection. And now I, my mind is
1: blown because yeah. maybe this guy is just
3: he's literally trolling the entire film community. But if he's not, this is this was his answer. He said, context is everything. I had to consider whether the ca- whether to cast Lady Bird as fresh or rotten in the context of a perfect score that people were using to trumpet Lady Bird as an all time best reviewed movie on RT." So basically what he's he's saying there is he saw everyone loved Lady Bird so much and he thought, I don't think this movie is that great, so I'm going to deliberately bring the score down. So he's literally confessing there that he did this out of spite, which is a a really jerk move to do. At the same time, though, in this sort of editorial I wrote on SlashFilm.com, I do say I think everyone's getting just a little bit, too upset over this and you know just because this one guy doesn't want to give this film you know a good review quote unquote it doesn't make the film any less good like if you love ladybird don't let this guy ruin that for you just enjoy the film and uh, he's clearly
1: wrong here that's you know a film's great well, job I, I, I don't think the fact that it's now 99 percent people are like oh you know we're not gonna see lady I bird i think yeah, it's the fact that are... like people hate trolls and they look at this guy as a troll and I get,
3: that. I get it and i hate trolls too but you know i just i wish everyone would calm down <laughs> and, and i also i also feel like this is the reaction cole smithy if that is his real name wanted and everyone's like feeding in feeding him what he wants i mean all trolls That's what they want online. They want people to get mad. They want people to get, quote, unquote, butthurt, as the kids say. And that's what everyone's doing. And this guy is probably just, like, kicking back and laughing his ass off at everyone. And I feel like everyone should just stop giving him the attention. Like, I've never heard of this guy until now. And now everyone knows his name.
1: Well, here's a question. And by the way, he has, like, less followers on Twitter than, like, you know, people I know that don't even use Twitter. So, uh, like, he's not, like, a big guy. Like, uh, you know, people are actually coming around and being like, wait, wait, Rotten Tomatoes is decided by people like this? Which uh, I I think people don't think about things like that. I think even, like, with something as big as the Golden Globes, you know, we celebrate the Golden Globes every year, uh, but I I think people don't realize that, that the Golden Globes, you know, is an award show voted on by what is it like does a, a few dozen international critics it's like and it's nobody yes. what yeah it's it's the hollywood foreign, press, foreign press yeah and uh but like if you look up the names of these people that are in the hollywood foreign press i challenge you to recall one review that you read from any of these people <laughs> um but that's not here nor there uh i, I wanted to ask you guys um should a review rating be based on solely just the film or should it c- could it include the conversation around the film uh the cultural conversation what people how people are responding to it do, do you know what I mean like or should that rating just reflect your opinion of that content itself uh i really don't think a review should reflect
3: what other people are saying about a film. I mean, I I guess there's, there's an argument to be made about, you know, the cultural conversation as a whole, but I feel like if you look at other people's grades before you issue your grade, you're, you're approaching film criticism incorrectly. That's not how you should do it. Like it should be your rating. It shouldn't be, Oh, I wonder what everyone else rated this film before I decide my rating. That's, that's not the way to do it.
2: I agree with Chris to an extent. I think film criticism is inherently subjective. It's what every person thinks or how they connect to a film. That being said, I think Rotten Tomatoes has sort of transformed the the field, the criticism field in a way that um, hasn't really it hasn't really been before. Like there have been conversations about how much Rotten Tomatoes really influences the box office, for example, or people's perceptions, but you can't really argue with the fact that Rotten Tomatoes is gaining influence in some capacity. So, I mean, for example, we see on marketing, um, marketing, in marketing, like uh, trailers and everything like that, that they uh, use the Rotten Tomatoes score as a way of advertising these films. So it's interesting to me because like, I personally like agree that film criticism is, is subjective. You should come away with your own opinions of film. But at the same time, the way that these films build anticipation and build audiences is through this larger cultural conversation. And, and Rotten Tomatoes is part of that. Yeah, that makes
1: sense. I I think what yeah part of what you're saying is there are expectations to be had. You know, be it from the marketing of a film, like you know, even coming out of Last Jedi, um, you know, I'm betting you if you look at reviews for the Last Jedi, half of them are commenting on what they expected from the marketing and what they got. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're commenting on bigger than just the content itself and. Uh, I know there's been times, even with me, that I've uh, you know, a film was like a darling of a film festival that I was not at, and later when I got to see it, my opinion, um, on that film was not just on that film, but on, kind of the hype, and the expectations of. Do you know what I mean, I, I, Chris? Does that ever happen to you? I, I, I yeah, you know, I, I see what you're coming
3: from there. Where you know there has been films like that where. I hear great things about it, and then I see it, and I think, well, that wasn't that good, but if I were reviewing the film, I, I don't think I would let that influence my rating. I mean, I would hope not, but, you know, I guess <laughs> I guess anything's possible.
1: Yeah, I, I think the problem here is this guy, you know, gave the same score to a bunch of movies over the years. And each one of those films that like he gave the score, uh, this this rating, he gave a, a a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But this one was the one with the score, the single review with the score that got a rotten rating, which seems to indicate that it's it's trolling to me. I mean, if it isn't obvious enough from his tweet, but uh, yeah, so I, I I think we've said enough, right? Like, do, do you, uh, Chris? Do, actually, you wrote a whole article on the site about this and uh people can go read it on slashfilm.com. we'll link it in the show notes but is there anything else from your article that you would like to say here
3: no i mean yeah like like you said there the article is online you should i advise everyone to read it um and like i said earlier just stop stop feeding this guy he he wants mm-hmm. this reaction and i guarantee he's going to try this again now because he he saw this reaction, so he's just going to wait for the next really well-reviewed film and he's going to pull the
1: same stunt and just ignore him when that happens. Okay, you know, before we go, I I have one question for both of you. Like, how do you solve this problem of, like, a troll (laughs) within the system? Because, like, do you remove them from the system because obviously they're trolling? Or, like, you know, there's people like Armin White, critics that, like, you know, seem to be contrarians, uh, but they there is a lot of value to the review even though it's you know <laughs> not, not the opinion of most of the people out there um you know you, you can't remove voices like that from the system so how do you fix the system do you make it so that uh you know if i give a review if i give a movie a b plus that is automatically fresh if i give a movie you know 7 out of 10 that's automatically fresh but if i give it 6 out of 10 it's like how do you, do you guys have any suggestions on how I mean, it seems to me that with Rotten Tomatoes gaining such significance in the popular culture that there needs to be more kind of oversight to this. Like, how can they fix it?
2: Like a government body. (laughs) Um, I mean, I agree with you to an extent. I wonder if there should be like in terms of rotten tomatoes or other critic aggregator sites like metacritic whether there's like a strict a stricter standard that should be held um or whether like each of the reviews should be combed over by a team that can decide whether it's truly rotten or fresh but you know the this is the um this is the aggregation of, of reviews and i think the only way to really like beat the system are to read separate individual reviews of critics that you admire Um, on your own. (laughs) So that's like a lame, lame answer to that. But I think in order to just kind of get out of that bubble of tomato meters and aggregation and systems, you need to just read a review because that's what it's all kind of boils down to.
1: And I I know a lot of people out there are saying make it harder to get approved by Rotten Tomatoes to be a tomato meter critic. I can tell you, you know, I've tried to become a tomato meter critic. I've, you know, some years in in my past, I, I saw, you know, hundreds of movies at film festivals in those years and done, did reviews and, and couldn't get on the tomato meter because I wasn't in a film critic group, which I now am. Uh, but, uh, You know, it's not easy to become a uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, approved critic. Uh, So, so Chris, uh, you know, I'll I'll leave you with the same question. What can be done to uh, make this process better?
3: I really don't know. I I do think maybe having the system rate things as fresh or rotten by the grade makes sense. But then what's going to stop people from this from just like deliberately giving it a bad grade then? And I don't know. I think what H T said is correct where you shouldn't really depend on the tomato meter score. You should just read reviews. I mean like Rotten Tomatoes is is not the
1: be all end all of yeah, a but film. You're asking people to do work. That that requires reading <laughs> skills. That requires, you know, time. Listen you know, we
2: are hoping for a better world, Peter. Yeah. Hey,
1: it makes it so much easier for me to go to a webpage and see a number do you know what I mean? Like I don't or, even see the you know, I could just see Fred, I could just see the I don't even have to look at the number, guys. I can look at the tomato or that green splat and I, I know.
2: Or you can re- read the review roundups published by slashfilm.com.
1: Yeah. Uh, which present I, I I admittedly presents a lot more information, I think, than uh than Red Tomatoes does. Um but anyways, uh I, I think this uh, this has come to an end. Uh at HD, where can we find more of your work online?
2: You can find me at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at HTranBui, and I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast on iTunes.
1: Chris, where can we find more of your work?
3: Uh, I'm also at SlashFilm.com, and I'm
1: on Twitter at CEvangelista413. You can find me at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at SlashFilm. You can find all the articles talked about today on uh, SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, Please go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. If you have a question, comment, concern, send it to us at peter at slashfilm.com. That's peter at slashfilm.com. If you have a question that you want us to read on the air, please leave your name and general geographic location so we can mention it on the air. Uh, We will see you tomorrow.